The following episode can be viewed on the YouTube channel Bernie or Bust Television. Good morning, USA, and welcome to another episode of the Bernie or Bust Show. Pull up a chair, have a slurp of coffee, and settle in. And he's quoting Lulu Friesdot, and she says, Look at this precinct. They start with 70 voters, but only 61 finish voting. This is in Iowa, in the Iowa caucuses. The instructions still say to divide by 70. So the math comes out wrong and you wind up with a lot of extra delegates. A lot of extra delegates that get assigned to the candidate with the highest decimal below 0.5. That's not voting. And this is a breakdown of why the caucus math is giving Mayor Cheat an artificial lead in Iowa. We all know there are problems in Iowa, and it's looking more and more that Senator Sanders is going to take the state, but did you know the math surrounding state delegates is very clever and somewhat nefarious math? Well, yeah, you wouldn't really expect that. You may think, but state delegates, don't we just care about national delegates? Well, yes and no. National delegates go to the national convention and can be assigned a variety of roles by the campaigns in the various phases of the process. But state delegates do something similar. They vote on all kinds of things for the state, their own platform, and in some cases that includes the state party chair. With Iowa being the first in the nation, it determines a lot about how the media narrative can manipulate the public to sow trust or distrust in various candidates. Now, who do you think set up all this mess in Iowa? Everyone keeps screaming, the DNC, the DNC. And while it is true the state party chair, vice chair, and a few others represent their state at the DNC meetings in the same way national delegates go to the convention, the true power lies with the state party chair. This all revolves around who controls the state because the Iowa state chair approves all of these elements you've all been screaming at and they tried to add online caucusing too. Had the DNC as a national body actually wanted to manipulate the vote, then they would have let that go. What a mess. So what has happened? The DNC stepped in and suddenly the numbers in the total began to reflect the numbers that burners were sharing from social media. What they were doing was going around the notoriously corrupt state party and collecting the numbers directly from the precinct captains. So the numbers we were getting were correct, but something was off. Pete had too many state delegates. Actually, everyone had too many, but it was disproportionately giving Pete more than Senator Sanders, while at the same time, the true percentages and final allocations were being hidden by the larger media sites while available from the local press. By the way, their numbers did not, and still do not, match. So bring in Lulu, whose tweet we showed in the beginning, who I have seen work on a number of election integrity-related issues to successful conclusions, she pointed out something critical that is inflating everyone's numbers. When the final math was being done, they were not dividing against the number of still eligible voters, they were instead dividing against the original number in the room. It's like this, 100 people walk into caucus, 10 are found non-viable, they decide not to reorganize, so the new number of eligible voters should be 90, right? Well, not according to Iowa rules or the, the examples we are finding. They are still dividing against the original 100, but now with fewer people. This is going to artificially inflate everyone's numbers. Now, this alone is not really that big of a deal, but it is when you use it with another rule that includes appointments based on rounding. 
Numbers above 0.5 are automatically rounded to a whole number. But what if you have an extra delegate or two still? Then you assign the delegates to whoever has the highest below 0.5. And that's why Pete ended up with extra delegates. And that's why Pete did not actually win Iowa with even with delegate counts as opposed to just the popular vote counts. So this is a big deal because it's Iowa. It's the first in the nation and the momentum of Iowa moves then on into New Hampshire. So we've got a problem right here in River City. Well, it has been so heartening to see the DNC and the Democratic establishment celebrate the diverse working class and immigrant voters who were able to participate in the Iowa caucuses for the very first time thanks to a satellite caucus system that allowed them to vote even though they had work shifts or other obligations that conflicted. I know Tom Perez has prioritized diversity and centering people of color as DNC chair, so he must be elated. Oh, actually, that's not remotely what happened. In fact, <laughs> quite the opposite. So just think about this. Goes without saying that Iowa has been an utter, complete disaster from the moment the election doomsday app made by the aptly named Shadow was called into service. First, no results. Then, selectively chosen partial results. Then, it became clear those partial results were wrong. Throughout all of this, DNC Chair Tom Perez didn't say a peep. Apparently happy to watch Pete run around claiming victory, the media buying it, and misinformation of the type that would make the best Russian bot proud spread like wildfire throughout the electorate. But then something happened. Something that could not possibly be allowed to stand. They started counting those satellite caucuses, and Bernie started catching up to Pete, and that, ladies and gentlemen, could not be allowed to stand. Just as Pete called the manager in order to get the Des Moines Register poll spiked, he once again called the manager to try to get the real results of the caucus from coming out. Apparently yesterday morning, after days of Iowa disaster, Team Pete called into the DNC to complain about the counting of the satellite caucuses, which again, were going overwhelmingly for Bernie Sanders, drawing him into a virtual tie. Now, after having done nothing about any of the other rigged democracy disaster, Perez decided that with Bernie moving into a tie with 97% of the vote in, something absolutely had to be done, tweeting, enough is enough. In light of the problems that have emerged in the implementation of the delegate selection plan and in order to assure public confidence in the results, I am calling on the Iowa Democratic Party to immediately begin a re-canvas. Now, lest you think I am making up the connection between Pete's call and Perez's sudden desire for a re-canvas, CNN reported that the satellite caucuses were, in fact, his main concern. Again, let me repeat. The satellite caucuses, where people like these folks voted, these are caucus goers at the South Sudanese Center in Des Moines, which went 80% for Sanders and were 90% were new voters. 90%. Any sane party would be celebrating these folks who put their faith in our democratic system for the first time, casting ballots for candidates that they believed in, that they believed shared their values. Or how about the immigrant workers at the pork processing plant who showed up before a long and very hard day of work to caucus and make their voices heard? The fact that these voices were not celebrated at all, on the contrary, they sought to silence them? Well, that tells you everything you need to know about the party establishment's real commitment to diversity. They're all about it so long as that diversity backs the status quo. The truth of the matter is, the war within the Democratic Party is in fact a class war. 
It is class warfare when Pete teams up with the DNC in an effort to suppress the votes of these working class voters. It is class warfare when the Democratic Party over decades realigns itself around the needs and interests of the professional managerial class, subordinating those of the diverse working class. We know what that party looks like. It's one where no one comes into your community communicating in your language, asking your concerns, telling you that you matter. It's one that assumes just because Democrats aren't blatant racists that the black and brown working class owe them their vote. I got news. They don't owe you anything. If you are not fighting to put the working class at the center of your politics, then your commitment to diversity is an inch deep because the working class is, in fact, disproportionately black and brown and female. So if you aren't ready to hear them, see them, and importantly, to empower them rather than just trying to pander with the weak tea of being less racist than the Republicans, then you are not, in fact, committed to real diversity at all. And so when a situation like this comes along where those diverse voices overwhelmingly back a candidate who challenges the status quo, suddenly the celebration of identity vanishes. No one really seems to want to grapple with the fact that Bernie Sanders won 45% of non-white women, a stronger performance than he had with any other demographic. Where's the discussion of how Bernie Sanders and his organizing model and policies and campaign hiring has actually centered black women? Something that we've been hearing for years now was critical. Where is the celebration of the fact that Bernie Sanders won 39% of all non-white voters, a performance that absolutely dominated every other competitor? Here's the truth. The party has one overwhelming goal. It is not diversity. It is not centering black women or Latinos or bringing new voters into the process. It is protecting the professional managerial class and their elite privilege. That's what it all boils down to here. It is class warfare time, and we know for sure which class Democratic Party elites are fighting for. So there you have it. That's what the DNC is all about. That's what Mayor Cheat is all about. And if you thought anything else, now you can change your mind because it's pretty glaringly obvious. More about Pete by Nathan J. Robinson. Why support someone who gives no reason to trust that he cares about anything other than his own career? It is a sad reflection on American politics that Pete Buttigieg is taken seriously as a presidential contender. After all, the question voters should ask themselves when choosing a candidate is, what have you done with your life that can give me confidence you mean what you say? Every politician will tell you what you want to hear at election time. Anyone can look at the mood of the electorate and craft policies that will be popular, but so few leaders actually deliver on their lofty promises, and you need to know what kind of person they really are whether they can be relied on to fight for you when it counts. You need someone who has been consistent in sticking up for the right thing. Pete Buttigieg, as I have documented at length before, has spent his life doing little more than try to advance himself to higher and higher levels of status and power. When he was at Harvard, he passed by the social justice warriors, quote, his term, fighting to get a living wage for the school's janitors so that he could go and have pizza with governors and media elites. As a newly minted Rhodes Scholar with the privilege to do almost anything in the world, he chose to go to McKinsey, a totally amoral consulting firm that advises dictators and drug companies on how to optimize their evil. There, he almost certainly helped craft layoffs and insurance rate hikes at Blue Cross. Instead of denying this, he pivots quickly to trashing single-payer health care. He worked on McKinsey's contract with the Department of Defense in Afghanistan, which funneled millions of dollars of taxpayer money to the consulting firm for seemingly doing almost no work. 
the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan could not find anything that McKinsey had produced for the $18 million the government gave it except a 50-page report highlighting the economic development opportunities in Afghanistan. When asked about it, Buttigieg simply says, it's all a secret. That sounds like a CIA operative to me. Buttigieg's company appears to have stolen millions from the U.S. government, or at least the inspector general has no idea where the money went except into McKinsey's pocket, in addition to their work on helping corporations fire people and pump more opiates into more bodies. Let's be clear, McKinsey is sociopathic. They have no hesitation about advising murderous autocrats like Mohammed bin Salman of bombing school buses and dismembering dissidents with bone saws infamy, and they even disgusted ICE employees by considering plans to optimize immigration detention centers by spending less on feeding detainees. Then they lied about what they did. Yet when Buttigieg was first asked about McKinsey, he could see nothing wrong with the firm and refused to accept that he had any moral responsibility whatsoever for the kind of work he chose for himself. He said that McKinsey's job is simply answering questions and solving problems, and they are only as moral or immoral or amoral as the American private sector itself. So very immoral then. Up until the moment his presidential campaign began, Pete Buttigieg cared little about issues facing working people and people of color. Don't believe me? Read his memoir and see how much he talks about evictions, homelessness, the racial wealth gap, gentrification, all problems that plagued South Bend during his time as mayor. He talks about upgrading the city to smart sewers and right-sizing the city from its contagion of blight through a controversial program of rigid code enforcement and demolishing homes in disproportionately black areas. He does not talk about issues of justice or even seem to understand what those issues might be. Mayor Pete's oft-discussed black voter problem is better described as the fact that black people, having had to live in a racist world, are often able to see through white lies and know when yet another white person is bullshitting them with opportunistic empathy. Pete's record on black issues as mayor was bad. He fired the black police chief, who was well-liked and had built confidence between the black community and the police department. After the chief allegedly recorded white police officers making racist remarks, Buttigieg is repeatedly denying knowing what is on the unreleased tapes, but a Young Turks investigation found that he was told about them and his legal team has had detailed, explicit descriptions of what was on the tape since 2013. Buttigieg has declared over and over that he fired the police chief because he was under federal investigation, but this too is not true. The obvious fact is that Buttigieg was simply uninterested in the relationship between the black community and the police. The number of black police officers in South Bend plummeted over the course of Buttigieg's tenure, and by the time Buttigieg announced his run for president, the force was only 6% black in a city where one-fourth of residents are black. Michael Harriet, in a detailed and scathing report on Buttigieg's indifference, said it was very clear that Buttigieg ignored racism in the department and then lied about doing so. At one point, half of all black SBPD officers were raising their voices and risking retaliation to call attention to the problems. Problems including white officers receiving promotions not advertised to black officers, white officers not backing up black officers and black officers being disciplined more harshly than white officers. Harriet documents just how dishonest Buttigieg's own retroactive portrayal was.
Not only is there a mountain of evidence showing that the city's black officers felt marginalized, but we could not find a single black complainant who said Buttigieg responded to their concerns personally or in writing. When The Root asked Buttigieg if he was aware black officers had raised issues of racism and discrimination, his campaign would only say that Buttigieg was aware, quote, that some officers had filed complaints with the EEOC and those were ultimately dismissed, unquote. They also claimed they couldn't respond because doing so in the middle of a legal process would have been inappropriate. Maybe Pete Buttigieg can't see. Perhaps the black officers were not loud enough for Buttigieg to hear. Or maybe he's deaf. There is ample evidence proving the black cops complained loudly about racism on the force before anyone filed an EEOC complaint. TYT and The Root have examined a slew of court records, memos, and emails which revealed that the SBPD's dwindling supply of black cops alerted every available resource to them of the discrimination in Mayor Pete's police force. It's what black officers specifically repeatedly told the South Bend Common Council, the BOPS, and Mayor Pete in memos, emails, and complaints obtained by The Root and TYT. The claim is reflected in at least five discrimination lawsuits filed in federal courts. The accusations were leveled in our conversations with current and former SBPD officers. Included in the documents were letters signed by 10 black SBPD officers, a significant cohort of the force's black members in which they described several problems within the department. In fact, Buttigieg consistently spins or outright lies to make his record look better than it was. Citizens of South Bend had long asked for a Citizens Review Board to oversee police. In his 2017 State of the City address, Buttigieg proudly announced that there was now a Citizens Review Board. But as Black City Council member Regina Williams Preston noted, this was utterly disingenuous. Buttigieg had done nothing except start referring to the agency that already oversaw the police as a Citizens Review Board. It's the same thing we've always had. Just because you say that doesn't make it so. To me, it was a betrayal. A betrayal, yes, and a bit of political gaslighting. Telling people they were crazy. They had had a Citizens Review Board all along. Even that board went from 80% male to 100% male under Buttigieg's tenure. Buttigieg mixes fudged facts with public statements of contrition and pledges to do better, which might be plausible if he weren't simultaneously lying about what he did, for example, by presenting misleading statistics to imply he addressed African-American poverty when he didn't. At the end of his term, quote, poverty among African-Americans stubbornly remained almost twice as high as for African-Americans nationwide, unquote, and portraying himself in a way that makes it seem as if he did nothing bad. A thing self-serving people frequently do is apologize for something and say they were wrong while simultaneously presenting what they did in a way that obscures how bad it actually was and therefore make it seem as if they were being generous and humble by apologizing for something that there was no need to apologize for. I have previously documented how Bill Clinton does this. Buttigieg apologized for the racial problems in the department by saying he couldn't get it done which implies that he was sincerely trying when, as Harriet shows, he simply wasn't. By apologizing profusely and releasing new racial justice policies with great fanfare, including touting support for his Douglas plan from black people who had never signed on to it, Buttigieg believes that he can overcome his record with rhetoric. 
In my initial article about Buttigieg last year, I warned that he would rapidly change his language to suit his audience in the hopes that nobody will remember what he sounded like five minutes ago. I also noted that he would be very good at this. Buttigieg is a polyglot who masters languages quickly. So he has gone from being an all lives matter guy who talks about how kids in minority neighborhoods don't have someone they know personally who testifies to the value of education to being as woke as necessary to win. When Michael Harriet expressed disgust with the latter remark, Pete quickly sat down for an interview with Harriet where he listened and learned and promised to do better. Buttigieg will surely do this every time a constituency needs to be appeased. He will do his research, release a plan, and dull the discontent. Of course, there are many people who take politicians at their word and see their sudden evolutions on issues as sincere rather than opportunistic. Sure, Mayor Pete has a record of completely ignoring black concerns until they caused a scandal that could harm his political career, but maybe he has learned and grown. Maybe even though he showed zero interest in issues of social justice in his 2018 memoir and revealed himself to be a narcissist whose constituents were invisible, he has had a revelation since it was published. Again, I don't think it's possible to accept an apology when someone is still lying about what they did, but even Pete's rhetoric during the campaign has been slippery and dishonest, suggesting over and over again that he adopts positions out of convenience. Back before his campaign had any policies and he was still speaking purely in platitudes, he still deploys sentences of jaw-dropping vacuity, Buttigieg said that this was intentional. Democrats had hitherto focused too much on policy and too little on philosophy. Plainly, this was only because the policies were being focus grouped and poll tested because he subsequently began debuting and touting big policies. Buttigieg supports those policies with dishonest talking points defending his decision to not advocate for free universal public college. He said that doing so would be a handout to billionaires, which it wouldn't. Defending his shift from being a staunch supporter of Medicare for All to trashing Medicare for All, Buttigieg implied that M4A removes people's insurance coverage, which it doesn't, and spoke up to defend insurance industry jobs, to see why this is ridiculous, imagine how it would sound if fire services currently operated the way healthcare operates. It is hard to believe that Buttigieg offers up these talking points because he believes them. He's smart enough to know they're misleading. Where Pete's positions and record would be embarrassing, he simply avoids answering the question in the hopes nobody will follow up. When the New York Times asked him whether as president he would support US-backed coups and war with Iran, he refused to answer. The potentially embarrassing parts of his consulting work are confidential. When he does give clear positions on things, they either shift at his convenience, such as pledging to stand up for Palestinians and then changing his mind, or often offer troubling hints about how he would wield power, such as being troubled that Barack Obama offered whistleblower Chelsea Manning clemency after she was tortured. Witness this extraordinary exchange with reporters asking him about making his fundraisers more transparent. Reporter, earlier today you said you were open to having a conversation about opening up fundraisers and that's a question that reporters have been asking for months now. So I'm wondering, when do you expect to actually have that conversation and give an answer on that? Buttigieg, I don't have a timeline for it. Reporter, as the candidate, can't you just direct your team to open these fundraisers? Buttigieg, Yes. Reporter. And why haven't you done that? Buttigieg. There's a lot of considerations and I'm thinking about it. Next question.
Reporter. Can you give us an example of those considerations? Buttigieg. No. What an asshat! Buttigieg evidently realizes that the U.S. media does not grill politicians particularly hard, and it's possible to just ignore what's inconvenient to answer. As Glenn Greenwald commented, the aggressive arrogance and utter contempt for basic transparency Buttigieg shows here is stunning and does not bode well at all for a Buttigieg presidency. Imagine if he adopted this attitude toward disclosing the federal government's actions. It is very plain that Buttigieg is a corporate candidate. He has dozens of billionaire donors and is heavily backed by lobbyists, pharmaceutical executives, and finance executives. The list is a who's who of the American power elite. He tried to disguise who his donors are, selectively disclosing them in order to hide the Wall Street fat cats, only opening up access to his fundraisers after months of pressure for transparency. Against the advice of both staffers of color and public relations advisors, Buttigieg's campaign pressed forward with a fundraiser by Rahm Emanuel's attorney, who was known for trying to block video evidence in the investigation of the death of Laquan McDonald from being released. Amid uproar, the fundraiser was finally canceled. Buttigieg has declined to say whether he will follow the corrupt practice of rewarding big donors with ambassadorships, which means he will. When confronted about having big dollar fundraisers in wine caves, he responds by pleading poverty. No excuse when he could have built a grassroots campaign like Bernie Sanders and pointing to other candidates' hypocrisy, such as Elizabeth Warren. And the wine cave attendees have spoken up to pretend they are not actually wealthy and imply it only cost $11 to attend instead of $2,800. What is particularly annoying about Pete Buttigieg is that it is extremely obvious what kind of person he is because he's virtually a caricature of the empty suit politician. Watch this sketch about a fictitious senatorial candidate and see if it doesn't seem almost word for word like a parody of Buttigieg. I have to go there. You can go there on your own time, and I will too. In his memoir, he recounts being flummoxed when a voter asks him how he can prove he's not just offering pleasing rhetoric. He can't, because that's exactly what he is doing. But because our politics have become so divorced from the real world, so focused on image instead of substance, and Buttigieg seems like the kind of person who might be president on a show like The West Wing, he has a chance. The media like him not because of anything he has done, undistinguished tenure as mayor of the fourth largest city in Indiana, <laughs> mostly memorable for a handful of race scandals, but because he has, in his words, the right alignment of attributes. He is made for TV, a Rhodes Scholar veteran from the heartland, whose identity would make his election a civil rights victory. Much of Buttigieg's Indiana heartland boy image is manufactured. His memoir downplays the fact that he was the child of Notre Dame professors raised on an elite college campus. He claimed never to have seen exposed brick or clock towers until reaching the big city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, which, for what it's worth, a correspondent of mine has claimed is false. Unfortunately, this kind of politics is downright dangerous. More than ever, we need someone who isn't a hollow careerist putting on a folksy image, but who cares passionately about fighting for justice. The threats of climate change and war are too great to leave in the hands of someone who doesn't seem to care about the lives of working people. Buttigieg has already dialed back his ambition on climate change and his plan falls woefully short of what is necessary, even if we could trust him to passionately fight on the issue, which we can't. 
The McKinsey approach to climate change will probably involve, quote, optimizing climate mitigation for maximal economic growth, unquote, or something. Tuesday's New Hampshire primary offers the chance to repudiate this kind of politics once and for all for voters to show that they demand something real and substantive and someone who has shown over their career that they actually give a shit about ordinary people. Let us hope New Hampshire voters seize the chance to show this man that they will not be manipulated, that they see what Pete is doing and have no intention of rewarding it. So after what I've told you over the months about both Mayor Pete and Elizabeth Warren, it's really clear now that we need to jump on board the Bernie or bus train. So if you're voting for a corporate centrist, it means, based on what you know from me, that you're voting for former years of Donald Trump. Don't do that. Get on board the Bernier bus train. Come get on board the Bernier bus train. Once you hear that clickety-clack, there ain't no time for turning back. Get on board the Bernier bus train. The preceding episode can be viewed on the YouTube channel Bernie or Bust Television.